Good evening, Garbage listeners. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, June 16th, 2016, and this is episode 30 of Garbage. That's right. So we have a a good show tonight. It's going to be a good show because uh, there's so many good things happening. So, And you're back. And I'm back, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I completely just disappeared off the face of the earth last week because I didn't know what day it was, and then I was planning on waking up early and heading off to BSD Can and um, had a momentary lapse in uh, memory, I guess, is the best way to put it. <laughs> so tell us all about BSD Can. Yeah, BSD Can was awesome. Um, I've never driven for like eight or nine hours to get somewhere. Um, but it was an easy drive and I got up there and Ottawa is a great city to get into. It was really easy to find things around, uh, the dorm. I actually missed the first day cause I was driving. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole conference was really, uh, a good atmosphere laid back a lot of really good talks. Um, met a lot of great people, ate some food, um, hung out and discussed various things and really enjoyed it. And one of the the more high points, I guess, of the conference was that um, Rodney Grimes was there, and he was giving a talk on the early days of FreeBSD. And my kind of interpretation of it was basically like, we kind of have, he's one of the main people we have to thank for FreeBSD and, um, you know, his work that he put into that. And he kind of like gave this great talk, and I walked in there, wondering why there were so many people in the room and then I kind of later found out because I didn't know who he was before that talk Hmm. and uh, somebody asked him at the end of the at the end of the talk they said so what have you been doing for 20 some odd years that you haven't been to a conference and whatever and he's like yeah I don't really do too much with computers anymore a little consulting Hmm. Um, I guess he's like yeah I top trees and I run an excavator to make money (laughs) and I thought it was interesting because uh you know, he seems like a really cool guy. Um, I actually got to hang out with him a little bit more in the after party. And, uh, you know, he was telling me all sorts of cool stuff, very intriguing stuff, but that isn't on YouTube for people to listen to, so I don't know that he wants it really talked about. But, yeah, it was, he's a cool guy, and uh, we talked a lot about uh, interesting stuff. So conference was great. Cool. So what what were some of your favorite uh, talks? Um. The other, the other talk that I went to that was really interesting, um, Antoine Jacoteau, um, I guess I'm butchering how you pronounce his name, but he was talking about, um, RRC.D. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and it, it was really refreshing to see him go through and talk about, you know, how it works and how it's all tied in. It was a very, uh, high level, not too technical talk. And, um, you know, OpenBSD really has a, a really good, initialization system for startup daemons and all that kind of stuff. And he talked a little bit about um, the history of what they proposed doing and what are the what the obstacles they overcame and that kind of stuff. So I enjoyed that talk uh, immensely. And uh, the other one that was equally as interesting to me, I think, was the, um, the talk that uh, Barnard gave about LibreSSL and FreeBSD. Hmm. Um, and the talk, of course, was, you know, educational and enlightening. But the thing that was really neat about it was the dialogue that was happening in the room between, um, like, Sean Webb and Peter Hessler. And um, uh, there was a couple other people, like uh, Sebastian Benoit and all those guys. And they were talking about the 
the cryptography rules as they apply in the U.S. and in Germany, and what that means as far as um, crypto export and their interpretation of, you know, what do you think happens because of these changes and so on and so forth. So um, that was the interesting dialogue for me is hearing what they had to say about it. And no one in there was claiming to be a lawyer, but you listen to the different countries' stance on things and the different challenges that people face, and you kind of get a, a realization that you know the software that we try and uh, develop. The only challenge isn't making it work. It's actually there's a bunch of different like niche things that it has to fit into. That so that was pretty cool. Hmm. Did you uh, see anybody in a garbage T-shirt? Um, I didn't see anyone in a garbage t-shirt, but a lot of people told me they really enjoy the podcast. Nice. Um, yeah, I, I think I probably had a couple dozen people come up to me and say, Hey, I listen to your podcast. I really enjoy it. So, uh, that was, that was, uh, rewarding and good to hear, I suppose. Cool. Yeah. I wanted to go to the PGP signing party when I was there and I wanted to, create a little friendly dialogue and talk about REOP, not because I think it's better than PGP, uh, not because I was advocating it, but I wanted to, I wanted people to have like a better field of view when it comes to, to doing, um, signing and encryption for messages. And, um, when I got in the room, uh, you know, there was like 20 people or so in there, maybe a few, a few more. And one of the, the guy who was leading the con, the, signing session, um, was someone that, uh, hangs out on IRC. So kind of, kind of knew a little bit about him, but he went up there and he was getting everything underway and doing a great job. And somebody raises their hand and they kind of interjected that, um, uh, basically the notion of us being able to trust your passport or license or other piece of paper, is really no more credible than anything else because those can be forged just as equally. And that he basically said the notion of signing parties is a little silly. Hmm. Uh, you know, establishing this ring of trust and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And you could feel the, like the atmosphere in the room change. And he said, I know that this is how a typical signing party goes, but I'm here to challenge it. And I thought that was a pretty fair thing to say. It was informative. It wasn't confrontational. It was just offering up a, a viewpoint. And I thought that was, uh, you know, bold. But at the same time, I, I sort of agree with where he was coming from. And, uh, you know, at that point, the presenter, he, uh, NJ, he just continued on. He said, well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, he just kind of carried on and kept his composure, which I was like, I was nervous for him at that point because I was kind of like my stomach was churning. <laughs> and uh, and then basically the reason I wanted to talk about this is because during that PGP signing, there was a whole bunch of like people validating their um, ID and their public key. And um, this is not a discredit on the people who were organizing the event or NJ or anything. This is just one of those things where um, it was actually fairly error prone to validate the key. Hmm. And so, uh, there were more typos or someone misspoke the, the ID or a, a letter in the ID or something happened. And there were more errors that way than there were, um, you know, people saying like, oh, this is really my key, but it wasn't actually their key. Um, so that was one of those things where you, you look at it and you say, well, 
the bad guys aren't our enemy. We're kind of our own enemy here. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it, it ran pretty long. And so I didn't really have an opportunity to, to discuss reop in that group. And, um, I would have felt a little bit uncomfortable after, you know, the, the, um, security researcher spoke up about his, uh, his opinion on signing parties and stuff. Um, but something really cool happened after the conference. Um, NJ, the guy who was conducting the signing party reached out to me and he said, Hey, um, I know that you were talking about reop and, um, I want to get more information to the people who were at the signing party about reop. Can I pass them along your contact information? I have the website here. Um, I just want them to have as much information about this as they can. And I thought that was really cool. Um, his, his commitment to this something, to this thing that he got volunteered into didn't stop at the conference. He actually went above and beyond to reach out to the people who attended this signing party and made sure that they got more information. And I was, I was really impressed with that. I thought it was really cool. And the other thing that he did that was really neat was he reached out to the security guy who, um, who spoke up about the signing party and what it meant and all this stuff. And, um, I guess he reached out he reached out to him to um, basically pass on more information to the people who were at the signing party um, so that they could have an informed decision and they could make, you know, uh, a good judgment based on accurate information. So I thought that was actually really cool of him to do that because security isn't something where I think any one person is like a complete authoritative source. You really have to keep learning about it and keep growing your understanding of it. Um, because it's a pretty complex thing to just uh, kind of assume that you know what everything means and what the implications of it mean. So I thought that was really awesome. So props to you, NJ. Uh, and that was kind of like the interesting thing that happened in that signing party. I've never actually been to a signing party. Uh, I have had a PGP key forever, and I've used it probably a handful of times in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you were saying about trying to verify someone's identity by looking at their passport, which Mm -hmm. I guess somebody could show up to a a key signing party with a fake passport claiming to be somebody else. Um, But the website Uh keybase.io, are you on that? No, I'm not. Okay. I can invite you if you want, but um, I don't, I never really understood the the point of it, but basically the idea is that you, um, you make a profile on there and then you can upload your um, public key and then you basically can link that identity to your identity on a whole bunch of other websites. Mm-hmm. And it does that with cryptography. So like you can, you post a tweet, which has like a signature mm-hmm. and then the web, this website Keybase tracks those things to make sure that they're still there. Basically. So that like, if you go to keybase.io slash JCS, you can see my um, identity is verified on Twitter, GitHub, Reddit, and my own website. Mm -hmm. And so basically that's kind of uh, a way to verify my identity and that um, if someone wanted to claim a different PGP key was me, they would have to also get access to my Twitter account, GitHub account, Reddit, and my own website. Nice. And then Keybase, I guess, provides a like command line uh, client where you can easily um, send an encrypted message to somebody else on Keybase. Uh, so it's, it's a interesting website, I guess. Um, 
bunch of people are on it and you can like follow people and get notified if their signatures change or something like that. Um, but it's like a whole company and I don't really understand like on their homepage, they have a list of their team and it's like 20 people. So I don't know what the hell they're doing or like how they're actually making this into a business. Mm-hmm. But I guess that's my uh, experience with many startups. I don't really understand how they are planning to make it into an actual company. Um, it just seems like a utility website. They uh, they sell all the keys to the government or something like that. Well, they're like you don't upload any private keys. It's all just oh. based on your your public stuff, and then you just um, you know sign like it tells you to sign something with your key. Uh, that's your key base key, not like your actual PGP key. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you like it tells you what to post on Twitter or or put in your GitHub profile or whatever. Um, so I think the cryptography is there, but again, I don't really understand. Um, it's like, you know, I made an account and I set all this stuff up and then I like never go back to the website. <laughs> so I don't really understand what's like, do people use this every day or what? But yeah. anyway, that's what I was reminded of, uh, when you said about verifying a, uh, identity through a passport. Yeah. And I think that's probably the happy medium between, you know, showing a passport that may or may not be forged and not having any like keychain or ring of trust at all, which is what Reop does. Reop says the notion of ring of trust and the notion of trusted keychains versus sort of trusted keychains versus not trusted keychains or keys is just completely rubbish. Yeah. And um and I and for the most part, I'm going to make a big generalization and say I agree with that. Like I think it's a silly concept. Um you know, putting this in a different context, if you're in a company of 100 people, it becomes a little bit different because the company says, uh, yes, here's the key that was issued. Yes, this person had to have generated this email and they had to have had their particular security token in place to generate this email and send it to you and sign it and you verified the signature. But when you talk about the internet at large and making sure that a person is a particular person, it's a completely different story. Um, the the thing that I would say is a little bit different is if you have something like OpenBSD or NetBSD or FreeBSD, if they're signing packages um, and they make a key available, well, you kind of have to, you know, assume some sort of trust there. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's three different, com- uh, completely different examples. I think you can kind of see a little bit about how trust works among those three different examples, where it's effective, where it really falls down, and... I think that's really one of those things that we have to get creative with and see if we can solve a little bit better. Um, and other people have taken other approaches too. And the uh, the OpenBSD keys, um, they are all they're rotated in such that there's a new key for every release. Mm-hmm. But it has the keys from uh, the next release in the current release. That's right. And then if you wanted to go back, you could follow that chain all the way back to um, a release that say you bought on a CD or a DVD, That's right. yep. and then that way you can be assured that um, nobody tampered with, unless somebody intercepted your mail or something like that. Um, but that way you can keep going forward and know that uh, each key um, was present from yeah. the last release. And and it's also printed on the um, on the DVD or CD cases, and I. Um, you know, I think you can read it off there. It's, um, signify keys are short enough that you can do that in, you know, pretty short time. Yeah. All right.
So that is uh, PGP signing mm-hmm. or key signing. What else? So the the conference as a whole, uh, really well run. I liked Ottawa. Fun times. Great people. The people that I met up there, great to hang out with. You know, you learn a lot. You come away inspired. You come away a little bit renewed and revitalized. So if you guys have a chance to make it up to any of the BSD conferences, please do so. Um, one of the things that I kind of took away from that is that um, OpenBSD needs to have a little bit more presence there. And I don't think, um, and, I, and, I, and I don't mean that in the sense that we need more presence there to be successful as a project, but I just think that there were a lot of people who really like OpenBSD there who, you know, would have appreciated stickers or T-shirts being for sale or anything like that. And yeah. um, um, anyway, yeah, would have been nice to see uh, a little bit more presence. So we might be addressing that in the near future. Uh, how many OpenBSD developers do you think were there? Um, I want to say there was maybe ten there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I want. Yeah, probably between eight and ten. I want to say, and a lot of active people who, you know are using OpenBSD on a regular basis and uh, support the project and, um, you know, contribute where they can. So, yeah. Cool. So about the, uh, you got the HP Chromebook 13 today, I hear. I did, yeah, and I'm really excited about it, too. Um, Tell us about it. Did you, did it live up to my uh, glowing review? It did, and um, I bought this, just so you know, I bought this as a replacement to my normal daily OpenBSD laptop. Oh, okay. Uh, um, I wanted a little bit better display was the thing that I was really looking for. Um, I wanted better battery life. As far as performance goes, you know, my X220 performs fine. Like, I don't I don't sit there and say, oh, man, I wish I could compile this thing faster or anything like that. Um, I just wanted something that, you know... I could write some Go applications on and SSH into things and have a trusted kind of like OpenBSD laptop. And um, yeah, this is a really nice computer. And I bought the, I think the same version you did. Yeah, the 8 gig version? Yeah, the 8 eight gig uh, Intel M5. It's got the really nice high resolution display. And yeah, I mean, it's light. It uh, it types really really well. The display is crystal clear. Those pictures you posted are kind of what what got my attention um, when I saw how clear you could read that uh, little flash ROM or whatever that was program. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. this. Is <laughs> I didn't nice. even like. I wasn't even trying to show off the screen at that point. Yeah, I could no, have given but, you some better pictures. No, that's okay. Um, I saw it come available on HP's site, and they were like one in stock. And I just hit add to cart, and I checked out immediately. And I accidentally hit add to cart twice. And uh, when I went to check out, it said, you know, you, you have to adjust the quantity because there's only one available. And <laughs> so I think I really legitimately got the one that they had in stock. And it's fantastic. Uh, the USB-C charger was a good thing for me because um, I've been kind of like toiling over the uh, charging situation for USB-C. My phone, you know, they want like $60 for charging equipment. And I, you know, I'll just use the laptop and the charging equipment for my phone and my laptop. But yeah, I really like it. It's uh it's a nice piece of hardware and it's you know, there have been better Chromebooks before that are like a little bit more sturdy. This one feels like a thin uh thin computer to me like, you know, maybe not as robust as the uh the uh MacBook Air, mm-hmm. but 
it's certainly better than the um, the other Chromebooks, even the higher end Chromebooks, as far as you know stability and strength and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, and it's really fast. I mean, even the fast ARM Chromebooks uh, f feel kind of slow compared to this. Yeah. Did you set up uh, like the Chrome part of it? Um. Like, yeah. I haven't even logged in, like made an account or anything on it. I'm planning on blowing it away. I just turned it on, and I wanted to, you know, see how the hardware felt and how it operated. But um, once I get a little bit more time, I do plan on putting OpenBSD on there because you've done tremendous amount of work on that, and I'm excited to see that uh, on this machine. Yeah. Um, so I guess an update to uh, last week's show. I was talking about the uh, Chromebook Frame Buffer driver that I wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I cleaned it up and posted it to Tech and got some feedback basically saying it doesn't need to be its own driver uh, and it should just be merged into EFI FB because it was sharing some of the code to set up the console, right? which is fine, I guess, but the name doesn't make sense to keep it as EFI FB. But anyway, so I uh, updated it today and then merged the code into EFI FB so the diff is smaller and posted that to tech, so hopefully somebody will okay that uh, soon, and I can commit that, and then you'll uh, actually have an ISO or uh, uh, something to uh, to boot that will give you a working console. Yeah, I can't wait. That's going to be awesome. Um, the one thing I wondered about, you said you hadn't installed it to local storage yet. Um, is there a driver missing or anything like that, or is it just that you haven't decided to blow it away yet? Yes, there is... Uh, to use the onboard EMMC uh, mm -hmm. flash, it uses the SDHC driver, mm -hmm. and it does not. Uh, it like recognizes it and then tries to use it, and then says like SD zero cannot enable card or something like that. Okay. So it doesn't. Uh, you can't see the hard drive, and I haven't. Um, I was gonna ping uh, Katenis about that because I think it's related to the stuff he committed recently for like faster you know faster access to that stuff yep um so i think it's related to that or maybe it needs something new but uh that doesn't work so i'm basically just uh using i installed openbsd to a micro sd card and that's in the micro sd card slot on the side of the machine mm -hmm. and that just shows up as a usb drive um so that is what it's booting off of in uh, cbios and then that's what uh, openbsd boots to um, but obviously, since it's USB mounted, uh, you when you try and suspend uh, the machine, it has to detach the USB, and because that's your root, it uh, gets all confused and panics. Yeah, that that would not make for a happy uh, suspend resume cycle. Yeah. Um, so talking about the changes that happened in um, SDHC, uh, I also heard a report. Um, this is completely unsubstantiated. I'm just kind of having dialogue. But I heard something about uh, the BeagleBone Black onboard storage was also not writable. Uh, and it was writable before. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if these things behave the same way or in a similar fashion. So um, I do know someone who's who was taking a look at it. I don't know if they still are, but... Um, I'm, I'm willing to take a look at that. I actually have a diff floating around from that from... Um, someone else, and then I modified it a little bit more. I can't remember who did it. It was it was a joint effort between a couple people, but uh, Patrick Wilt and uh, some other people had worked on something, and I kind of merged their changes together 
and people were testing it and I didn't hear horrible things and I didn't hear great things. I actually didn't hear anything, so I just kind of let it rot on the vine. But it was a similar thing to what Ketnis did, and I'm, I should take a look at what he committed because I know with mine, the onboard storage still worked on the BeagleBone Black and it increased the speeds and DMA and voltage and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the, the, the only question I had with it is, did it break on Intel hardware, uh, X220s and these various laptops that other people use? And I haven't heard anything, so maybe we need to give that another spin. I can take a look at that diff that I have. Yeah, I just assumed it was uh, like the the device on the Chromebook is like too new because it's Skylake and everything is new. Mm-hmm. And so it was just doing stuff that wasn't supported yet, but I haven't tried like backing out all those recent changes and seeing if it was actually a regression. Uh, yeah. So if it would work on the old code, but slower. Yeah. I guess that was kind of a big jump to start blaming a, a something on a change and yeah. calling a regression out. But yeah. Um, and what else? So the, uh, do you have a USB-C ethernet? I don't have a USB-C Ethernet. I have um, I just have a regular USB one. Okay. Oh yeah, right. Because it has the regular USB port. Um, I cannot get IWM to. I got it to associate to my access points once, mm-hmm. and it was like up and working for I don't know 15 minutes, and then it like slowed way down. So like I was SSH'd into the Chromebook, and I couldn't like the the typing on it was like super laggy um, over SSH. So and now, like when it comes up, it can't. It won't even associate to my access point. So I meant to uh, email um, Stefan about that. Yeah. So I've just been using the USB Ethernet because I keep I'm you know doing driver stuff, so I have to reboot like every five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's all the fun stuff. It, but I mean, I feel like this is um, as a hardware platform very close to being something that's usable. Uh, when I say very close, I mean you know not measured in like porting another system on chip or something over it's you know yeah ironing out some drivers and uh well i, I don't mean to trivialize your work on the on the frame buffer but <laughs> well there's that and the the trackpad doesn't work either which i'm working okay. on um there's it's part of like a it's an it's over i2c like everything else these days um mm-hmm. and when i was booting into linux and looking at it it seems to be using a subsystem that uh, Linux or Intel calls LPSS, which is oh. low power subsystem. Okay. And I emailed Katennis about it. Like, are you doing anything with this? Uh, cause I don't want to step on your toes if I have to start writing drivers for it. Um, and he said that LPSS is like just marketing stuff that it's like, there's nothing special about the devices and that the I2C controller is probably just, um, the DWIIC driver that I wrote, mm-hmm. but it attaches over PCI so I started writing a, I started splitting up my DWIIC driver into, um, like putting the most of the code in the IC directory and then mm-hmm. making like a DWIIC underscore a CPI and then a DWIIC underscore PCI, mm-hmm. um, to basically attach it over both. And it's doing that now, except it won't, uh, like there's a, some issues with it. Um, so once that actually works, I can see if that trackpad is actually, uh, hanging off of that like because i know that it is because of the if you look at the acpi dump you can yeah. see in the um, dsdt that the trackpad is hanging off of that controller um but i don't know if like that lpss stuff is actually something that um requires like 
actual drivers for to initialize devices differently or if it's mm. just a regular PCI device. So once I do that, um, I will have to then write a ELAN uh, trackpad driver that goes over I2C, which uh, I think a few Chromebooks use. Um, so yeah, so some more drivers to write. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, honestly, like, I think that's probably one of those things that you think is like, okay, I'm just doing some work. But uh, I know that murmurings in the halls at BSD can, people love hearing about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, when you put that kind of stuff in the podcast, I think people really, really eat that up. Um, talking about, you know, the the hardware devices and how they attach and the process that you go through and stuff. So um, in an episode or two when you're like, you know, talking about, uh, you know, once you get it working, talking about the process you took and how all that stuff works and attaches and initializes and comes up. I think uh, people would love to hear that. That's um, one of the things that was conveyed to me and people talking to me about the podcast. So I'm passing that back along to you. <laughs> all right. I, uh, I made the mistake in a previous episode of talking about porting the uh, ATH driver, whatever wireless card is on my Samsung laptop. Mm-hmm. ath 10k or 11 or something that we don't have uh-huh. uh but the linux driver is dual licensed so i was just gonna like start porting the code over uh and i mentioned it on the podcast and then i got emails from people who are like hey are you actually working on that like what's the progress and <laughs> i spent about two days working on that driver and then i gave up because uh-huh. it's just way too much it's the like linux code is there's way too much yeah. stuff to port and it's it's not like the drm where it's like a critical thing that will benefit a huge number of machines yeah. so uh maybe uh stefan can work on porting that driver if he's being paid by the foundation or something because i don't want to do it in my free time yeah speaking of um wireless drivers in your free time uh when i was up in the uh in ottawa i talked to uh mike b and we were kind of talking about um, adding 802.11n support to the Compex cards that are in the APU2 or that uh, the company PC Engine sells. Mm-hmm. And um, basically what it boils down to is he's got a bunch of things that he's working on for work, at work, and the AFN driver would be something he would be doing on his own time. And, um, you know... So it's it's a little different, you know, when you're talking about like like what you just said. Someone is um, being paid to work on a BSD driver that benefits OpenBSD or FreeBSD or whomever uh, at work. So they go there and they spend eight hours a day and they work on it. And uh, you know, the stuff that happens in your free time where you can give up when you're frustrated and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but anyway, so it looks like there is hope for the Athen driver to receive the 802.11n uh, updates. And just to touch on that briefly, uh, the first thing that has to happen is the hardware has to be told, um, we have to update the driver such that it can tell the hardware to operate in the 802.11n mode. And the hardware hardware will handle the um, 802.11n modulation or whatever you would like to call it. And then um, after we get that working, this would also, just for clarity, this will be in client mode, 802.11n in client mode. And then that actually doesn't really do much for the performance of an 
uh, 11 card because 802.11n modulation um, is still really just as fast as the other 802.11 whatever. The performance benefit for n comes in where you have multiple paths. So the MIMO, um, meaning you can transmit over one path uh, or multiple paths and you can receive over multiple paths, that's where you get the benefits um, of 11n. And what needs to happen there is the driver actually needs to be updated to handle the streams and put them back together and all that kind of stuff because that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't happen in the hardware. So the hardware is responsible for modulation. The driver is responsible for handling the, uh, the frames that come in over the uh, wireless hardware. So the once the driver is updated to support MIMO and the hardware uh, is modulating correctly, um, then we can start to look at making the host AP mode support MIMO and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> it's it's a non-trivial amount of work, and uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel, but that's what I'm using in my APU2. And 802.11g works fine. Mm -hmm. um, I am getting a couple device timeouts, like I mentioned before, but that's what's on the horizon for that one. So maybe that's interesting to someone as well, because a, a, a handful of people have mentioned the APU2, and there's interest in it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Some belated OpenBSD news, the uh, UMB driver finally got imported. Oh, yes, nice. Uh -huh. Gerard Roth's uh, mobile broad broadband interface model driver, which uh, provides support for uh, doing, like, cellular stuff in those over-the-cellular cards that are in, like, ThinkPads and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been, he wrote this driver at uh, Genua because um, yep. he works there, and um, he wanted to, or I guess Genua wanted to upstream it to us which is awesome. So he's been like battling everybody on tech trying to get this driver imported and everybody kept like throwing it back at him and saying they wanted all these little changes and there was so much bike shedding and it was making me mad because it's like this huge driver that would like, you know, it's providing all this functionality for this cool stuff. And, uh, I was getting upset cause it was taking so like everybody kept, uh, fighting him on it and i felt like he was eventually just going to give up yeah uh because i probably would have given up if i were trying to like get a driver that big uh upstreamed and everyone kept fighting me on it it would be horrible to lose that that great uh contribution yeah so i replied on tech and basically said you know cut the bullshit let's get this driver imported already stop bike shedding everything so uh he made a few more changes i think and then uh it got imported so that's yeah. great. Good news. And the behind the scenes of that, um, uh, some of the people that we chat with on IRC are share an office with him, and they said he was furious <laughs> yeah. because he had been encouraged to try and get this back into OpenBSD, and he's like, why am I trying to do this? This is horrific. Yeah. And um, one of the other things that that happened was is, you know, if you look at, like, um, some of the feedback, some of it is constructive, but it came from people who worked with him on the driver who were like literally paying for him <laughs> to get the driver working. And it wasn't in the context of like, well, here's how I think you should do the driver. It was like, hey, you did a good job with the driver. It's kind of like, yeah, that's where we want it. And then they came back around and like changed their mind, maybe a little publicly, mm -hmm. which was kind of, you know, not funny, but, you know, it's one of those things where you like, 
it's funny, oh my gosh, not funny, haha. And um, and then one of the other things that I kind of got a kick out of is that, you know, people were saying, oh, we never do this, we never do this. When in fact, <laughs> there have been a couple cases where we've actually done that. So, yeah. um, you know, um, you know, wireless um, cellular modems, you can liken that a lot to, you know, like what we had with PPP, um, where we did have to initialize an address on the interface. And it did have to happen in the driver, or there was some arbitrary tool built just for that. Um, so maybe I'm over over uh, stepping my bounds and my qualifications to say this, but you know, uh, cellular radios kind of have a couple different things, unique things that they need to have supported that may not fit exactly in our typical networking paradigm. And I think that that was the the big thing to take away from this particular. Um, discussion on tech yeah so like when someone makes a contribution like this um, and people push back it's kind of like um, well I didn't really plan on uh, how to articulate this but uh, it's a lot different when someone contributes something and there are minor problems with it and then you just import it as is and then you clean it up in the tree Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, once it's in the tree, everybody can update their CVS tree, and it's all in there, and people can start, you know, hacking on it a lot easier and um, sending around small diffs or just committing stuff directly. And, uh, you know, it's like a group effort. But until it gets committed and people keep pushing back, um, it's so frustrating. And it's, especially with CVS, it's a lot, of, it's difficult to, you know, make a diff of everything that you have modified, but not you know, catching other things that you may have in your tree and then sending that diff out and then someone wants something changed. So you have to make another change and then you have to like make another diff of only those files and mm-hmm. then send it out. And then the people that were testing it now have to back out your first one and then apply your new diff over the whole tree. Right. And you have to do this back and forth over, you know, a whole bunch of times and then it, that makes it harder for other people to start testing it because now they have to back everything out and then they get, you know, start getting conflicts or whatever. And, um, you know, you as the person like that has to make those diffs, uh, it's harder to do that. And that's obviously one of the shortcomings of CVS and that something like Git makes uh, somewhat easier, even if you're just doing it. Um, and I guess maybe that's just an argument for using Git locally. Yep. Because you can just have a, you know, a Git, converted tree of the cvs tree and then do your own commits in your local tree and then just do like a git show you know a revision of your uh massive change and then just email that out um but for everybody else not using that uh i don't know it's just a big hack and uh it's annoying because i've had to do that just you know recently with the cbfb thing um yeah i have a tree on my Chromebook that's checked out of a non-CVS and then um, I have other changes in there because like right now I'm writing the uh, the DWIIC stuff so when I do like a CVS update I have you know 20 files that are modified and they're all kind of in similar areas so then I start having to do weird things to produce a diff of just those CBFB files yep and then like even to test it myself. Like I wanted to test, I, once I merged everything back into the EFI FB driver, well, my Samsung actually runs the EFI FB driver. So I wanted to, uh, make sure that it still worked there. 
So then to make the diff on my Chromebook and then apply it on my uh, Samsung, well, I had problems there because I was running an old version of CBFB on my Samsung. So it was just a big pain in the ass. And I don't know if this is more complained about CVS or the way that we manage or deal with outside changes in OpenBSD. But I wish that there were, if, if that the group as a whole were more accepting of outside or even internal changes that don't affect other people, like they're new drivers that don't aren't going to break anything. Right. Um, and it may not be to everybody's like, you know, exact standards, but once it's in the tree, it just makes it so much easier for everybody and it makes it so much easier to, to work on. So let, you know, give your okay or whatever. And then once it's in the tree, you go and make those changes. Like instead of pushing back on the person and saying, well, I think you should change this and I want you to change this and whatever. And you're like nitpicking every little thing, just right. say, okay, let's get this in the tree. And then I'll, you know, then you go in there and, and make all those little changes you want to do. Well, let me offer this. I think this is exactly what you're, where you're driving at with this. So with your driver that you posted to the mailing list, there's uh, three or four diffs that got emailed out. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't really know which one to start on, except that I go to the most recent and say, okay, this is the one I want to try. Hoping that, you know, I didn't miss some, or you didn't miss some file that got added or something in the last one that I needed to have the first one applied for and so on and so forth. But what really should happen is you should commit the new driver on its own. It's not tied into the build. It's not anything. I can go in there and I can uh, add it to the configuration file and I can test it out. And then we can get the driver working for us. It's not going to be built with a normal kernel or whatever, but we can iron things out and we can collaborate. Mm -hmm. Then after we have that new thing ironed out and working, we know what the code actually is going to look like. Then we talk about merging the two drivers together because you don't want to sit there and um, work on a new driver and break an existing one only to find out you had um, you had something wrong in your new driver or you had the same bug in both places or so on and so forth. You want to discover that when you merge the drivers. Okay, we got the work done. We collaborated on it. We didn't risk breaking anything else. Now we can merge the things that are similar together. Um, and that's... In, in my opinion, that's what we should be doing, and I think that's what you're driving at when you're saying uh, how we should collaborate, how we should import, and how things should be brought together as far as naming, new drivers, merging, unification of code, and so on and so forth. Yeah, because, I mean, we basically have to work that way because of the limitations of CVS. If we were all using Git and we had a shared upstream, you could just add my tree to your uh, git config pull my tree and then see the the one change that i made and then you know do your own commits on your own tree and send me diffs and all that other stuff but because we don't have that um and i guess this is part of the reason why um to go on a tangent i wanted to or i started uh i initially did the commit id stuff in cvs mm -hmm. a long time ago um so that every commit going forward has a unique uh, random commit ID, but it's across every file that changed in a in the like change set, so that uh, all of the CVS to Git uh, conversion tools would not would be able to just use the commit ID to figure out what is in each change set. Well, we're, there's obviously many years of commits in the tree that don't have commit IDs, so I was. I wrote a Ruby script um, that tries to automate that. 
mm-hmm. to basically find all those commits or all those change sets, group them together, uh, sort them, and then apply commit IDs to them. And then once I have that final list, I would then take that to Theo and then try and get those commit IDs added to the RCS files on cvs.openbsd.org so that everybody that does a CVS checkout after that point sees the same commit IDs for every revision uh, throughout the entire history of the project. Mm -hmm. And then once that was done, I could do a formal Git conversion of the CVS tree and host it on, uh, we have the github.com slash openbsd, and I used to host a Git tree there of the source tree, ports, and Xenocara. Uh, And then I started to figure out that there were problems in all of the existing Git conversion tools, and I went on a tangent uh, writing my own conversion tool, and it didn't work and whatever. Um, So basically, that's where I'm at now. So I need to get that done at some point so I can actually have those commit IDs, and we can start using even, I mean, obviously, we're not going to switch to Git on CVS, but at least if a lot of developers and users can use Git um, to collaborate around diffs and stuff, I think it would uh, help us out a lot for for things like this, especially. I agree completely. And I guess it doesn't have to be Git. I mean, it could be any uh, distributed uh, revision control system, but obviously Git is uh, what all the cool kids are using these days. Yeah, it's pretty widely accepted. And I mean, I complain about the interface to it and it makes me grumpy, but honestly, I would prefer that over you know, some of the crazy things that we have to do uh, for CVS, but I honestly, I like CVS. It's decent enough. Well, like, yeah, I mean, we can keep it as, you know, the revision for a revision control for the whole project, but all of the development that individual developers do leading up to making CVS commits can be done in a distributed way that makes it a lot easier to collaborate. Yep. And I know that a lot of OpenBSD developers are using Git uh, locally, except that it's just that everybody runs a quick conversion of the tree so that they can do stuff in Git, and then they do all the commits locally in Git, and then they just email out the diffs and then commit them to CVS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, getting back on topic, uh, the uh, that UMB driver finally got committed, and that is great. Absolutely fantastic. What is that sound? It is like pouring down swimming. rain here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. So I guess. Oh, I did have one more thing I wanted to talk about. Sure. Not at all related to OpenBSD because we're not an OpenBSD show, remember? Nope. Uh, so I was working on my pushover message sending daemon in the past uh, many weeks, and I was yep. converting it to um, be multi-threaded. And I had like separate message sending daemons for talking to Apple's servers and one for Google's. And this was going to merge them into one and then use Apple's new HTTP2 interface for sending uh, push notifications. So I finally uh, stopped working on Chromebook stuff and figured I'd actually do some work. And I finished the new version of the daemon. And it was basically working on my laptop, but it's difficult to test because it actually has to talk to Apple's and Google's servers to get a response and then like handle all the weird error codes that it would run into. So it was pretty difficult to test beyond, you know, my limited capacity on my laptop and like sending a message to my own phone. Um, 
so I basically just put it into production and uh, dealt with the fallout because <laughs> that's how I roll. So uh, I put it into production and there were, you know, a few little like uh, commits because anytime it basically ran into an error, it would just die. And then the like uh, program that I wrote that basically monitors everything would just spin it back up within 30 seconds or something. Sure. But everything is being logged. So I would just tail the log, watch it die figure out where it um, where it died, fix it, uh, run it again, and keep doing that. And so, yeah, uh, it, it was kind of stressful because, you know, Pushover gets has to send out a lot of messages per second. Mm-hmm. So the longer I have that daemon not running, uh, the more the queue gets backed up. And if I don't have that, if I don't send out messages within, like, 30 seconds or maybe a minute of receiving them people start to notice and then they complain so i can't i couldn't really afford to uh leave it down for more than about 30 seconds at a time which made it kind of stressful to uh quickly find a bug and fix it right but i guess the moral of the story is uh do lots of logging because you can turn that logging off later in production or whatever but uh it's great to have that and like you know, when you're about to die, like, you know, dump the air, dump the full stack trace, dump whatever else you want. Uh, and then that way you can quickly fix stuff. So yeah, it's, uh, running in production now it's handling, uh, lots of messages per second, sending to both Google and Apple. Uh, it's using Apple's new HTTP two interface. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to do the stupid callback or feedback stuff that I have complained about in a previous episode. Yep. And, um, yeah, so the uh, only problem I have with it now is that there's uh, it's using a lot of memory. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if it's like a memory leak, uh, but I, because it's only been running for like a day, but it's definitely using a lot more memory. So I may have to dive into that a bit more, and maybe in a future episode I can talk about how I'm doing that. Um, but I actually, there's a Ruby gem called RB Trace. And the uh, tagline for it is like S-Trace, but for Ruby code. Yep. And I actually just forked it and submitted a pull request to the maintainer to add OpenBSD support because it has to compile some of it. And he merged it within like 30 minutes. That kind of sounds awesome. Yeah. So now OpenBSD support is in there. So it'll compile and uh, whenever he makes a new um, gem, you can just gem install RB Trace and... Yeah, it lets you basically just inject code into a running Ruby process to dump stuff or do whatever you want. So I'm going to try and figure out where this memory is going. And that's about all I have on that. Cool. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Well, I um, I don't think I have anything else to talk about. Do you want to cover anything else or you want to wrap the show or what? Uh, let's see. We had a listener request. Should I oh, yeah, switch right. from PFSense to OpenBSD? Yes. and I And I think... Uh, if I may take this one, I think definitely switch to OpenBSD. Um, and I say that not having any idea about your setup. And you're going to say, well, if you don't know my setup and you don't know PFSense, then why are you telling me to switch to OpenBSD? That's what I was going to say. <laughs> well, and I and I would love to take a crack at answering that. Um, honestly, I think it's best to switch to OpenBSD because um, OpenBSD is better, I think, at uh, firewalling than PFSense. And, um, and I also think that it's better to use something like OpenBSD in that position and learn how to 
set up and configure and work around the things that are different from PFSense than it is to try and make PFSense like OpenBSD. Because it's really hard to take what OpenBSD has and, and start to wedge it into other things and push it into other things. I think um, it's better to just start with the author of all those tools and um, you know use that um, simplified interface and so on than to go the other way around. So that's my uh, completely subjective biased opinion. Yes, switch do it no matter what. Um, but but you know maybe you have some different thoughts on that. Uh, I've actually never used PFSense. I've only heard about it through uh, the FreeBSD Now podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, and but I understand that it like has a web GUI, so you yep. can configure everything through that. So that sounds like a uh, lower barrier to entry. Um, but like you said, I don't know this guy's setup, so I don't know like if he has some super complicated config that would be difficult to write by hand in uh, a PF config that would be easier to do in PF sense. But if it's not and it's something simple, I would say uh, go for it. Try it, try it out. And if you like it, uh, use it. If you don't, uh, switch back to PF sense. Uh, there's no sense, you know, making things really difficult for yourself just to uh, say that you're running OpenBSD, I guess. Yeah, and so to to add even more perspective on that, if you if you're running PFSense now, you know how it works, you know the challenges, and so on and so forth. My experience, in my opinion, here is that to fire up OpenBSD to do a fresh install, to set it up and get your configuration running is such a low barrier for you to try that it doesn't even make sense uh, to listen to the rest of the ramblings that I'm about to say. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, like, you, you do a fresh install, you know nothing about OpenBSD, to get packet filter running and, and routing packets, I mean, it, it's really a low barrier. And it's really, you know, people build tons of infrastructure on OpenBSD's networking stack. It obviously can do it. Um, and... You know, this isn't like a Cisco where you're going to have to like go get certified and take a course and read documentation and talk to customer support to set it up. This is really like, you know, do the install, read a couple FAQs, read some man pages, um, and test the configuration. And you'll know. I mean, you'll know right away if it's if it's uh, going to be a good fit for you or not. So go for it. I say. Uh, yeah, and I would. I guess I would say, you know, I wouldn't like go up to somebody that's running PFSense and just say you should run OpenBSD. Right. But this guy's asking if he should switch from PFSense to OpenBSD, so I'm assuming he has at least some interest in uh you know, kind of digging under the hood more and running OpenBSD and doing the stuff more manually than from PFSense web interface. So yeah. uh I would say if you're curious, go for it. If you're not, then uh don't worry about it. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Hopefully that helps. I mean, that's our unbiased and biased opinions. Yeah. I mean, if you have, you know, more specific uh, questions, uh, I guess we can give more specific answers, but those are pretty uh, broad answers. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's all we have for this show. Does Was there anything else you want to talk about? No, I think it's a good show. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If there's anything you would like to hear us talk about in a future episode, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM and through our website at Garbage.FM. Brandon, where can people find you? Yep, I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. 
and uh, you can sometimes find me on Google+, Plus, but you can no longer find me on LinkedIn because I deleted that junk. You don't like Microsoft? Uh, it wasn't just Microsoft. It was like the security breach, and I was getting a ton of spam. I'd already dele deleted LinkedIn before, and then the whole Microsoft debacle, and I was like, eh, now's as good a time as I need to quit getting spam from LinkedIn. Word. Uh, I'm on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs, and I'm not on LinkedIn either. One more thing in common. I read an interesting thing today on uh, Intel Management Engine. My boss actually sent it to me, and he was uh, he's like, hey, you should read this. This is a good read, and I sent it along to Metabug, the IRC channel. And it was basically just talking about... Um, how Intel Management Engine works, mm -hmm. like what it has access to, what its role is, and a couple things like you can't disable it and still be able to use your machine, so that's kind of like a scary thing. It also talked about how breaking uh, the Management Engine involves, um, you know, breaking into a chip that has a key embedded somewhere in it that's really hard to read and come by and all this other stuff. So it's really hard to like crack and reverse engineer and all these other things. And, um, you know, everybody's just kind of like, Oh, it's Intel. It's, you know, it's what we use. And we just kind of go with the flow because arm isn't fast enough or it isn't well enough supported and so on and so forth. But if you look at what security researchers say about this management engine, it's pretty scary stuff. And, um, so, you know, one of the things that I was kind of rattling around in the back of my head was, okay, it's one thing to need a another chip on the machine to run the processor. I'll give you that. It's scary. It's hairy. Whatever. It's another thing to have a chip on the machine that can... Uh, be, well, because... Let's let's take another step back. The uh, What was the management stuff that Sun had? Because they had similar lights-out management. Um, it couldn't... What's that? Ilom or Lom? Yeah, some, so it's something along those lines. It's uh, There's another some with an I in it. But anyway, it could do similar things, but it couldn't, like, build TCP connections back to wherever it felt like and, you know, read everything out of your memory at all at any point in time and send whatever it felt like back to anywhere on the Internet. Um, so I get that you kind of had have a need for this, like, management engine processor thing. Um, but then you can't disable it. And I'm kind of like, well, okay, what's going on here? Like, looking at it completely subjectively, just kind of like my my tinfoil spidey sense is like saying, okay, something's kind of up here. But they actually went through great lengths to make sure that you couldn't go in and break this stuff uh, in hardware. and And that kind of tells me, like, if they're trying to put this on every single computer they produce, like, what's going on? You know? I was going to ask you before when you were talking about your X220, is uh -huh. that one you can flash core boot on it, or does it have this problem with the Intel ME? Yeah, it it has the problem with Intel ME. You can flash core boot on it, but you still use the binary section of the uh, management engine and VGA as well. Right, okay. Um, yeah, uh, this was the one going around on, uh, was it Boing Boing? Yep, I think so. Yeah, I'm glad there was finally like a, uh, uh, article that, um, was not some presentation at a security conference talking right. about the Intel ME. Um, so 
maybe there will be some additional pressure on Intel, but probably not. But yeah, uh, same thoughts. I don't understand why it can't be disabled because, um, I mean, I, I could see why they want it to be difficult to disable because right. if you, if in, in like, so the whole point of the thing is so that enterprises can control the computers that their employees run to fix stuff. So if your right. computer is completely dead, um, you can still get in through the management engine and revive it, I guess, or like do remote reinstall or something like that, because mm -hmm. it operates at such a low level that you can control the entire computer and you don't need like an operating system running. But with that said, like uh, secure boot is a pretty important thing in the BIOS, right? But mm -hmm. you can disable secure boot on pretty much any computer. You can just go in the BIOS and say secure boot off. Like you don't want it to require that anymore. And it may give you some warnings or whatever, or it may be hard to find, but you can do it. Um, I don't understand why they don't do the same thing with the ME. Just go have a BIOS and the, the CompuTrace thing. Have you ever right. seen that in your BIOS? I don't think anyone's ever turned it on, but um, it's the same thing. You can go in there and you can turn it off and it gives you like this big scary warning that says if you turn this off, you can like never turn it on again or something. Right. And it's like, great, yeah, I don't want this tracing crap on my computer. So why don't they give you the option to do the same thing with the ME um, or even a non-permanent option, but just make it so that if you rip the that ME blob out of your core boot ROM or whatever, the computer won't reboot after 30 seconds like it does now. Mm -hmm. um, so there's got to be some other reason why they are so protective of that thing and why they uh, won't let you disable it, which seems kind of like conspiracy theory-ish. Only we know they're not conspiracies anymore. They're just called actual reality. Yeah, it's not paranoia if they're really after you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like... Because AMD has a similar thing, yep. and uh, ARM, does ARM? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't really know the details about it to, to authoritatively say, but I want to say that, of course, ARM has the same thing. Um, System-on-chips basically are every peripheral device connected on a single chip, so, of course, there's a way to do that. And, you know, it's not even just like a debugging or a management kind of thing. Like, you know, there's... There's some design and purpose around all this stuff, so yeah. So there's a petition uh, petition from the Purism people. Mm -hmm. uh, they were making a laptop that was supposed to run Core Boot and not have the ME stuff in it, and it was going to have some other security stuff like uh, physical toggle switches to disable your camera and your microphone, and it would like come with Linux installed on it basically like to give you complete control over the entire computer. And so all the people that do that, like actually work with core boot every day were like, um, this sounds like a scam because you can't, uh, ship a computer running a new Intel processor without the Intel ME on it. So they were basically like, how are you guys planning on shipping this? And sure enough, purism, you know, built the thing and they were ready to ship it. And they're like, Oh, our core boot, ROM isn't done yet. We're going to ship it with a normal BIOS. And then once we are able to uh, figure out how to disable the Intel ME, you can just flash a new, you can flash Core Boot to it. So they didn't really accomplish the major goal that they were trying to accomplish. Uh, so it's basically just a similar 
like Ultrabook to, you know, it's similar to any other Ultrabook out there, except it has physical toggle switches for the camera and the microphone, which is great, but it's not worth the exorbitant price that they are charging for this thing. So they recently, within like the past few weeks, they have this petition on their website uh, so that if they get enough signatures, I think they're like shooting for like a thousand. And uh, since this article came out today, um, this has also been going around. So I'm going to just check it right now and see how many signatures are on it. But they were hoping that if they get a thousand signatures, they can show their Intel like account manager that they want chips without ME on it. Um, and again, people were kind of like, it's not going to do anything like Intel even ships ME on Apple, uh, on the app chips that it sells to Apple, who would be buying way more than purism and Apple can't even get the, them without ME on it. And obviously an Apple machine has no use for the Intel ME. You can't, you know, reinstall Mac OS or whatever on them. So what's the point? Um, and there are currently 939 signatures. So I will link to that so you guys can uh, sign it and make it 1,000, but I really don't think it's going to accomplish anything. Yeah. Well, that's what I was asking you earlier about Coreboot is uh, if you'd built Coreboot for this new Chromebook, because this is an M5. Obviously, it has ME, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so with Coreboot... Um, if you had to build a new image, I'm guessing you had to extract the ME off of your existing image, um, tell Coreboot where to find the ME, and build the new one. And I wondered kind of like what that process was like. But you said you didn't need to build a new one for the stuff that you were working on. I was kind of trying to avoid building a new one so that uh, anybody can just buy this this uh, machine or or any Chromebook and get OpenBSD working on it without even having to reflash anything, right. because um, to reflash the the full ROM, like there are parts of it I think that are read write, so you don't yep. have to remove the write protect screw. But if you want to reflash Core Boot, because um, I think on some of some of the Chromebooks you can reflash CBIOS but not Core Boot, right. so you can flash uh, CBIOS to upgrade it or whatever. Do you, do whatever you want. Um, but you can't change the core boot stuff that actually boots Chrome OS without um, removing the write protect screw, and that uh, I didn't want to have to do that. But anyway, um, to rebuild core boot, I am really worried about it. I because if you you basically just get one shot at it if you flash the wrong or if you flash the image and it's wrong, the machine won't boot, and then you have to open it up and then hook up your uh, you know, programmer and do all that stuff, which I had to do on the, uh, that old Chromebook that I was playing with the arm one. Yep. Yep. And it's, uh, it's not fun. No. And, uh, so I didn't want to do that. So since I didn't have to flash a new core boot image, I didn't, uh, mess around with that, but basically you can buy, you can download the full core boot ROM from Google as the recovery image. Uh-huh. And then, so I would, I would, I would have done was just rebuild core boot and then flash or like you can even do it with like DD, just DD that part of the new image that you built and stick it into the um, full ROM image. So you're only basically overwriting the small core boot part. So right. anything else in it, like the VGA BIOS and the ME and all that other crap would just be in there the way that Google shipped it to you. Nice. Yeah. 
I know I there was a little more dialogue at the BSD con BSD can about uh core boots on the X two twenty and stuff and mine is still in a compromised state, but I've seen a bunch of people posting pictures to Twitter that um, you know, hey look I have core boot working on my X two twenty and VGA this and all that stuff and they're like what they aren't telling you is like how they're booting their operating system, which is the the piece that kind of makes makes the whole core boot experience valuable is some whatever payload you're booting, you know, you need to be able to do something useful with it once core boot is on there. And so you need to have, you know, the CBIOS or some other payload that payload that can boot OpenBSD and and all that kind of stuff. Well that was a problem with the old uh the uh I can't remember if it was an Asus. It was that Rockwell chip, the ARM Chromebook that I was playing with, the one that was only like 130 bucks or whatever. Um, that was the problem with that because it ran ARM, so it had core boot, but the payload was not CBIOS like it is on the HP, so it can't boot uh, a normal you know x86 stuff, obviously. So the payload, payload on that was um, depth charge. Yes. Because the older ones, like the Samsung one, uh, just had U-boot. So if you wanted to boot something else like OpenBSD, you just get a U-boot prompt or whatever, right? So right. it's so e- it's easy to just type in U-boot commands and like boot an OpenBSD kernel off of some FAT partition somewhere. But with depth charge, it's like all built in. So you would basically have to replace depth charge with U-boot, which I couldn't get built for that Chromebook. Because yep. it would be all custom stuff, and I was like, "All right, this is way over my head," and I haven't <laughs> even gotten OpenBSD booted yet, let alone some driver writing and stuff. So, I don't really like that level of of technical stuff. I guess like I get easily discouraged if I can't even boot an OpenBSD kernel, because um, at least once it's booting OpenBSD, like that's my territory. I know what I know how it works, and I know what to do. So, like, with the HP Chromebook, once I verified that it was actually booting the OpenBSD kernel and just not showing anything, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is not that hard. I can figure this out. But if it wasn't booting the kernel and it was some issue related to, like, memory and uh, something like that, like, no way. Yeah. Um, one other sidebar, since is like, the after hours anyway, um, someone was asking me about uh, core boot and the difference... Uh, at BSD can, and uh, I made the comment that uh, core boot was essentially U boot, uh, and I figured I'd offer up clarification because that was a pretty broad jump, and it's not entirely a- accurate. But core boot um, for x86 is its own thing, and then people were like, "Hey, we want core boot for ARM because we're going to start using core boot on all of these ARM uh, Chromebooks and this and that and the other thing." And what wound up happening is um, core boot. Um, pulled in U-Boot for ARM uh, and basically started building around that. So anyway, I wanted to offer that clarification. So when I made that generalization, it only really holds true for the ARM architecture and isn't true and indicative of the entire Core Boot um, project, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, so... uh Everybody sign that petition, and hopefully we'll get some Intel processors without ME on them. We can only hope. Yeah. Oh, that was another thing. There was a RISC-V um, talk 
and Sean Webb was in there, and I guess he demonstrated hardened BSD running on RISC-V uh, hardware. And the idea, I wasn't at the talk, but the idea is basically like, now we have a, you know, a hardware platform that we can run our software platform on, and I would really, I really want to know more about this because that sounds like something exciting. Um, hopefully it can be, you know, cost effective for us to buy as consumers, powerful enough to run our, you know, Java, uh, node, whatever, Docker applications that we run on BSDs. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So that was a pretty cool talk. Um, I think they're up on YouTube now, like it just as live streams. And I think they're going to splice them up into the individual talks. So we should be able to find that sometime soon.